Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, 11 through 12, and 25 through 32. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and alone am, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept you, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are, are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. This has been God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for us as we get into the sermon. Uh, I just want to open with this before we, we get into it. it. It is weird to worship in a gym, and it's weird to worship in a gym separated from each other and wearing masks. It's weird to worship watching online. It's just a challenge. But, but here's what I was thinking about, the, the, I've been meditating on recently, is the power of God is readily available for all of us. The power of God and the gospel of God is not bound by mask or distancing or a pandemic or watching online. He is laying before us this morning a buffet of his presence. 
his word and his, his amazing presence, the, 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 uh, the, the communion that we have with each other as saints and the communion that we're going to partake together, he is laying before us a buffet this morning. And if you come hungry, whether you're watching online or here, if you come hungry, I can guarantee you one thing. I don't know how he will come to you, but he will make his presence real to you, and that I can promise you. He'll make his word real to you, and he'll meet you right where you are. And so let's just pray for a moment, if you'll join me in prayer, asking him that he would open his word to us and that he would flood his presence here into this room. Father, into this room, into this gym, and into whatever room that people are watching, God, we pray that you would do exactly that. We pray that you would flood this place with your presence. God, we are hungry. We are desperate. Uh, God, we often don't realize how hungry and desperate we are, and yet here in this moment, as we, as we are in the middle of a pandemic, as we're in the middle of, uh, of a dire situation as a country and as a world that goes beyond uh, COVID, it goes deeper and beyond that. God, we, I pray that this would be a moment for us, for your church and for uh, those who have been running away from you to realize just how far we are and just how hungry and desperate that we are. And so Father, we ask, I ask you in the name of Christ, would you move in this place? Would you open your word to us? Would you meet us where we are and would you minister to us? Would you let your gospel find good ground in our souls? God, would you awaken us that we might be sent? Would you show us your glory? God, those of us who are kind of saints, we've been around a while and things don't tend to move our hearts the way they, the way they used to. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts God, for those of us who here are struggling, we feel like we're barely holding on, God, would you provide a source of hope and encouragement? And God, for those who are watching who have never bowed their knee to you and confessed you as Lord, would you show yourself as the one for whom their soul has been longing and awaken them this morning, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Uh, we're in our series uh, in the, the letter from the Apostle Paul to the, to the church in Rome, the, the, the book of Romans. And, and uh, Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, many people would consider the, the letter to the Romans or the book of Romans to be his magnum opus. It's, it's sort of the, the place where he lays out most clearly and in most detail from start to finish, like the, the big picture of what the gospel of Jesus is. And, and again, the, to just to define what gospel means, if you've been around church for a while or maybe you're new to this thing and you hear the term gospel, what gospel means is it means good news. It was the, particularly the news that a herald would bring from a, from a, a battle to a people who were waiting back in the, in the homeland to, to hear the, 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 the result of the battle. And the herald would come and he would bring, if your king, if your general was successful in battle, the herald would come and would bring gospel or good news to you. And, and Paul has been laying out, he laid out in the beginning of the book in chapter one, that he's not ashamed of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation for the Jews first, and then also to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. And so if you want to know what 
Christianity is all about. If you want to know what the gospel is all about, which is what the, which is what the gospel is, is the core message of Christianity. Here's what it's about. Here's what Christianity is about. At its core, it's about salvation. What it means is that this world is broken and fallen and we are broken and fallen and the story of Jesus or the good news or the gospel of Christianity, the good news of Jesus is the story that Jesus came, sent by God. He came in order to save us and to save salvation, to redeem creation, sorry, to redeem creation itself. Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. So the good news about what God has done and is doing to repair or redeem this broken world, and in fact, us, ourselves. And in fact, what we hear in, as we look at the, at the book of Romans is we hear that the gospel is changing and will change absolutely everything and everyone. From chapters one through eight, Paul really lays out what the gospel is and the need for it and how it is changing and is changing creation and is changing us and how it comes in, addresses the problem of sin and separation from God. And then he lays out how that redemption and restoration is happening in Jesus Christ. And that is namely that God is offering to everyone the free gift of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You hear that? God is offering to you and I who are in need of salvation, who are in desperate need, we're racked by sin and separated from God. He is offering to you and to me the free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last week, what that looks like is it means us calling out or throwing ourselves upon God. He says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It means laying ourselves out before him and crying out to him saying, God, would you save me? I am in need of saving. I'm in need of a savior. I'm in need of your work on the cross and confessing with our mouth from our core of who we are that Jesus Christ is Lord. It means bowing our knee to him as our king and as our Lord. Then Paul lays out in chapters nine through 11, which we've been trying to deal with the past few weeks, he, he, lay, he starts to deal with an issue that, that he would have been dealing with and that the church in Rome would have been dealing with. And it really is, it's a really important level of the big picture of what God has been doing in creation. It's really crucial. It's important to us now, but admittedly, okay, Chapters 9 through 11, if you guys have been around the past few weeks, admittedly, chapters 9 through 11 is like the densest part of this book, and it's probably the most controversial part of this book. And, and we've been trying to lay out faithfully, David and I, over the past few weeks, what it is teaching. It deals with some, some really kind of hot-button issues that kind of get some of us hot under the collar. It deals with issues like election and predestination and I don't even have to do a longer list, do I? It kind of makes, some of you got all, already made your blood pressure go up a little bit. And you, I see your ears are turning red because you've had conversations with, with each other about this topic. And, 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 but what, let's just step back for a second as we're finishing this section and see what is the big question that Paul is dealing with here? And that is really, what about the Jews? That's really the big question that he's dealing with. What about the Jews? If God has brought salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus, then what was the whole thing that he was doing with the nation of Israel? What was the whole thing that he was doing with Abraham and all of his descendants? If you've been around church for a while, maybe you've kind of had the same question, like 
well, how does this all fit in together when I read the Old Testament and I see Abraham, the nation of Israel and the Jews, like how does it all fit into now Jesus and, and what God is doing now and how do I make sense of all this thing? Because if, if the Jews were God's chosen people, right, and God's perfect law, you guys, again, you guys have seen the movie, Moses comes down with the big tablets and he has God's perfect law and he brings it to the Jews, the nation of Israel. If they were his chosen people and God gave them his perfect law, then, 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 then why does the whole thing about Jesus and why is he bringing salvation by them? What, what, what is the whole thing with the Jews? It did, it is, is Paul saying that the Jews' disobedience of that law and then their rejection of Jesus, because remember, Jesus Christ, he stood before Pontius Pilate and Pilate wanted to let him go and the Jews themselves declared, they, they demanded, hey, let him be crucified. We'd rather have, the, we'd rather have Barabbas instead of Jesus, like crucify him. Did that disqualify the Jews? And here's the bigger question. If it did, then how can any of us trust God for our salvation? If God chose the, the Jews as his chosen people and he called them his people and he said, I'm going to put my law in your heart and your soul and I'm going, to, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to keep you. And then he just sort of like because they keep disobeying, he just rejects them and he picks a whole new plan seemingly. Then how can we trust God for salvation? How can we trust See, this would have meant a lot to Paul because he was a Jew and would have meant a lot to the church in Rome because the, the church in Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, we think that uh, the early church in Rome was, uh, was founded by Jews who were in Jerusalem around the day of Pentecost. And so they were there at the very beginning when the spirit fell on the church and the gospel went forward. And then we think they went home to Rome and carried the gospel there. And then some Drama happened in Rome. The Jews got kicked out of Rome for a while. And they had to, when they came back, all of a sudden, the church that was in Rome is now a vast majority a Gentile church or a non-Jewish church. And that church would try to be, be trying to figure out, like, all right, how do we fit in together? How do Jews and Gentiles fit in together? And what has God been doing? Because the Gentiles across the whole empire of Rome were now the vast majority of the church. Some Jews had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but most hadn't. And now those Gentiles who were used to be outside the promise of God are now pouring into the church. And so Paul ends the previous section that we covered last week like this, Romans 10, 19 through 21. But I ask, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. He's talking about the Gentiles right now. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. Again, the Gentile nations, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those, this is God speaking, I've been found by those who did not seek me or those who were pagan, those who were outside of the church, outside of the promises of God. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, Paul writing that would lead to some big questions. 
if this is the way that God's bringing salvation to this world, what does this say about God? And then what does it say about us? What does it say about God? And what does it say about us? Now, strap up. We're going to go really fast, as fast as I can go. And we're going to go really big picture through this chat. We're not going to run through the whole thing because it's a, it's, a, it's a long section, but just we're going to roll through the big ideas of this passage. So strap on. And if you have questions about the details and how this works out, I would be more than happy to point you to David after the service. No, I'd be more than happy to talk with you after the service or anything. First of all, if God had worked previously to the Jews and now he's offering salvation to the Gentiles and most of the Jews are not following Christ the Messiah, what does this say about God? Look at verse one of Romans 11. I ask then, this is a big question, one of the two big questions that Paul asked in this chapter. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? Paul starts with a question, has God rejected his people? And this would bring up a lot of questions if you think about it, right? It would bring up a lot of questions because then Paul says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So if, God, if Paul is asking, has God rejected his people, the Jews? And then he says he hasn't, it would bring up a lot of questions to say, all right, what do you mean by that, Paul? Like, how can you say he's not rejected his people when most of the people of the Jews are not following after the Messiah? And are you saying that there are multiple ways to be saved? And that's what some people would believe. Some people would believe that uh, that the Jew, God gave the Jews the law and he said that you are my promise, my covenant people. And then he brought Jesus and brought salvation to the Gentiles. And so now there's a, a salvation offered here for the Jews. If you just keep my law and follow after me because you're my chosen people, you'll be saved. But for the rest of us, we have to accept Jesus. And Paul has thrown that down through the whole book, saying through the whole letter to the church of Rome, saying no, we are all sinners, both Jews and Gentiles, and there's salvation offered to no one except under the name of Jesus Christ. So, so if that's true, then, then, then Paul is saying there's salvation offered not by anyone else. God has not rejected his people. But then, Paul, how can you say that? Because most of the Jews aren't following. How can, we, how can I trust God for my salvation if the Jews back here couldn't trust God for their salvation? That would be a question that would be raised. Look at verse 11. This is the second big question that Paul asks. So I ask, did they, that's the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? So in other words, did, did God set them up as his people, send them give them the law through Moses, say they're his chosen people, and then send Jesus and say salvation is offered under no one except by them in order they might stumble over Jesus and they would fall. And he says, by no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So if you remember how this happened, kind of laid out, the sal salvation, the gospel, first went to the Gentiles through Peter, uh, God gave Peter a vision. He put down all these unclean animals that you weren't supposed to eat according to the Old Testament. And uh, God said, eat and 
Peter said, I'm not going to do that. I'm a good Jew. And it happened. And finally he said, no, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Now I'm sending to you a, a servant that's knocking at your house even now. And he's, you're supposed to go to his master and proclaim the gospel to him. And that was a Gentile, Cornelius. And the gospel went to him. His whole family, his whole household was saved. And that's how the gospel first went to the Gentiles. But then what happened is God sent Paul out on a missionary journey to plant churches. And when Paul would go to a town, he would land into a synagogue where the Jews were and he would proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and salvation was offered to them by no one else except by the Messiah through trusting in him for salvation as savior and confessing him as Lord. And each city or village that he would go to, there would be some Jews that would believe, but then he would get, usually get kicked out of the village, out of the village synagogue, and he would go proclaim to the Gentiles the gospel, and more Gentiles would come in. And that's how the gospel starts going to the Gentiles, because the Jews over and over again seem to reject the call of Christ as their Savior and their Lord, and yet the, more Gentiles accept it. So he says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Again, this would bring us to questions about God. Here's a big question. Is God just playing with the Jews? Or God, did God just play with the Jews? Was God trying to get salvation to the world? And so he gave them his law so that, so that they could be a chosen people, so that he could give them promises that he was going to bless the nations through them. And then Jesus would come out of that. And then he would kind of throw them to the side so he could get salvation out to everybody else. And the question that it would bring a lot of people is, is God just playing with the Jews? And that would ask, cause us to ask a question that many of us have asked about God. Is God just playing with humanity? Are we just puppets throughout history that God is playing with in order to get his purposes accomplished? And we just happen to be kind of puppets or pawns on the chessboard that he's moving around in order to do his deal. Is, is God uh, capricious? Is God just moved by whims? Is, hey, hey, I'm going to do this now and I'm going to do this now. And he's kind of moving us around like we don't really matter. And that can make us ask questions about God. Can I trust God in what he's doing in my life and what he's doing in history? Can I trust God with my children? As you lay your children down at bed at night and you pray for them, can I trust God with them? Can I trust God with my salvation? Is he just playing with us all as humanity? So that's why Paul has asked this question, has God rejected his people and has God just set the Jews up to stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, no, in verse five, he says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. He says, salvation has always been by grace. That when we, that when we kind of, get out of step is whenever we begin to think that God owes us something. That we can earn salvation. We talked about that last week. That we can earn salvation with God. But he says, no, it has always been by grace. And when the Jews and the Gentiles, when anybody rejects God, they are, reje they are trying to make their own salvation, their own righteousness by works and not falling down upon the grace of God. This is what God's been doing. He's chosen in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. 
Do you know why God set up salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone? Not by the works of the law given to the Jews, but by grace offered through Christ, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and to Gentiles because we all want to make our own salvation. Do you know why he has offered salvation that way? So that he can have mercy. Salvation can be through mercy of God and not by our own works. We can trust God and we can trust God with our salvation because God has set up salvation from the beginning to not be of works because all of us would fail. He set up salvation to be of mercy alone, by grace alone offered to us. What does this say about the nature and character of God? It says, first of all, that God is gracious because salvation has always been offered to mankind by grace alone, alone. There's no way, because you and I are all sinful and broken at our core, there is no way that we could or, were or would be perfect enough, earn our way, be good enough. Like, look, I want you to give to the need in Bihar, India, but you giving to the need in Bihar, India is not gonna ingratiate you to God. You're showing up to church. I want you to show up to church, either online or in person, but you doing that is not gonna ingratiate you to God. You doing your quiet time and reading your Bible is not gonna ingratiate to God. He's not gonna say, oh man, look what a great man or woman they've been, so therefore I must offer salvation to you. No, none of us can do anything to earn our way, but you know what that means? That means that salvation is graciously and mercifully offered to everyone regardless of what you have done. You cannot earn your way. It shows us that God is in his nature gracious. Do you believe that? God in his nature is gracious to us as mankind. It also tells us that God is just because the Lord will deal with people not according to their, uh, to their heritage, not according to their background. He deals with them personally and one-on-one -on -one according to their actions. We cannot earn our way with, to salvation with Christ, but yet because we are by nature uh, rebels against him, everyone who is a rebel against God is under the judgment of God. And he is not only gracious, but he is just to everyone. Because you have a great pedigree. You're the son or daughter of a pastor, or you are hitting, like on your little Bible app, it tells you, hey, five years in a row, you've had your quiet time and you've not missed a single one. It doesn't matter what you've done or what your heritage is. You are under the just, the justice of God, but yet God is also gracious to you. It tells us that God is merciful, that he offers salvation to all, regardless of your background and performance. All are consigned to obedience, and yet he did that in order that he could offer us salvation from mercy, so he could be merciful to us. You know what also it tells us about God? It tells us that he is long-suffering. The Jews, for generation upon generation upon a generation, had been and majority of Jews continue to reject God as their Lord. They continue to try to make their own salvation, which by the way is what all of us do, whatever religious structure we put around it, but it's what 
that they have done for generation upon generation upon generation. And you know what Paul offers here in this chapter? He says that God offers salvation to them from mercy and that God has not given up on the Jews and that there's a day that there's gonna be a great harvest of the Jewish people that are gonna be called back into the Lord, back into the Lord's gracious arms because they see the salvation that is offered to us as Gentiles and they become jealous and they rush into the kingdom of God. God in his nature is long-suffering. He is just, but he bears with us. You know what that tells us about you and about me? It means he is long-suffering with you and with me. We have, I don't know about your life, but I know about my life. I continually, this week, I was racked by, by conviction after conviction of the ways that I, that I treated my Lord and my wife and my kids and my friends, and I was been racked with conviction over and over again. And yet here's what I know that God is long suffering to me and he is long suffering to you. He is born with us with gentle hands throughout all of creation. He is just and he's gracious and he's merciful and he is long suffering. You know what else this, this passage tells us? It tells us that he is active. He does not leave salvation up to you alone. He's not saying, Hey, I'm offering you a, Hey, a buffet over here if you want to come taste it. Um, there have been, there've been times where like, you know, like, like there's only so much ice cream left in that carton when you open it out of the freezer or only like one piece of cake in that container when you open it. And I've kind of gone like, Anybody want any cake? Like really quiet. So I can say like I, I offered, but they like would have had to have like Superman hearing in order to hear the offer and come down. God doesn't offer quietly the offer of salvation to us in some back room somewhere. He lays it out for all of us in the gospel and then he doesn't leave it up to you in order to wake up from your stupor and your sleep, which he describes in this passage. He comes after you and he opens your eyes to see the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. He organizes the events of your life in order to bring you to a end of yourself to see the free gift of salvation that is offered to you through his son. He is just and he's gracious and he's merciful. He's long suffering and he's active to bring you to himself. If you are a Christian, it's not because of your great ability to see your need. It's because Christ came after you. And if you are here today watching or in person and you're not a believer yet, you will not be a, become a believer because you make a decision for Christ, though you will make a decision. It won't be because you check a box on the card or say a prayer. It will be because God graciously comes after you and causes you to see the beauty that is found in his son opens your eyes, breathes life into you, and then you confess him as Lord and are awakened. Our God is gracious and merciful and just and long-suffering and active. That's what this passage tells us about God. And then what does it tell us about us? We've got to go really fast here. It tells us that God's acceptance of, of us is not based upon works. In other words, you're not in because you're in. That's the message to the Jews. Because they were a Jew does, and part of the chosen people of God does not mean that they were saved. They have to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and throw themselves upon him as their savior. And the same thing for you and for me. The elect obtained it, excuse me, but the rest were hardened. 
As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Just like in Israel, where there are everyone who's a member of Israel, you're a member of the covenant people of God, but not everyone is going to be saved. There's that remnant that's preserved. It's the same way in the church. You may have grown up in the church. You may be a member here or somewhere else. You may, your Bible may be well-worn. You may know all the hymns. You may be a really good person. It's very easy chance that you are a better person than I am. But that does not make you a Christian. Just as Israel's works was a stumbling block to, for them to see their need of a savior, for many people sitting in this church and other churches, your good works are a stumbling block between you and Christ. There's no salvation by works. And some of you, your good works and your good deeds, the fact that you are better than other people is what actually continues to harden your heart away from your need of a savior. You know what the life of a Christian is? It's not necessarily someone who is good, though our lives should be good. It's the life of someone who is continually living in desperation because they see their continual need of a savior. It's someone who has never gotten beyond the need for repentance because they see their own soul and the fact that their only hope for salvation is through Christ alone. But you know what else this tells us about us? It tells us that our rejection of God isn't final. Or in other words, you're not out just because you're out. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a part of a church, if you don't associate with Christianity, or maybe you've been in church a long time and your heart continues to get hardened and your good works is what hardened you to your need of a savior, your rejection of God is not final until it's final. Just because you're out of salvation does not mean that you are out forever. Just as the Jews whose hearts were hardened, Paul's holding out hope that they will be saved and that one day there'll be a great harvest of them coming in. God has not given up on you until it's all over. You might think, I am so far from God. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I've said. You don't know where I've been. You don't know where I, what I have done, where, the kind of person I am. It's not over till it's over. This morning, this moment right now can be the moment I pray God would breathe upon your soul and you would see that God's been working a plan to draw you to himself. That's Paul's great confidence. Now, lastly, I've gone way long on this. And I would end because my time's over, except I just got to cover this. God's acceptance of us, Paul says, isn't just for us. Over and over again in this passage, in verses 11 through 14, 20, and 25 through 26, he tells us that God has called the Gentiles in order to make the Jews jealous. What would make them jealous? You know what would make not only Jews, but anyone who is not a believer in Christ yet jealous is them seeing us enjoy unity with the Father and walking in a new life, assured of, of and living for a heaven that is to come. Paul has a burden 
for his people, the Israelites. And my question is, do you have a burden for your family? Do you have a burden for your community? Do you have a burden for your church? Do you have a, a burden for your country that they would see the life of God pulsing and living within you and that would cause them to be jealous? Even if they don't believe, that it would cause them to say, I wish I could believe because I wish my life looked like theirs looked. It's that desire that's compelling the Evans to, to leave a stable job and to move down to Charleston to minister to college students. It's that drive and desire that's pushing the Durans to leave what is comfortable here and to go to the south shore of Massachusetts where there are fewer Christians than are in Saudi Arabia and to try to plant a gospel-believing church there so that people would come to know Christ. It's what's it's what pushing the believers in Bihar, India to serve their fellow man who are starving when they have enough food themselves. He's consigned us all to disobedience that it might be of mercy alone. Now, as we finish up these chapters, <clears throat> we all probably don't agree on the meaning of them, Right? predestination, election, how God works for the Jews. There's lots of different theories about how it all works out. But the question is, what do we do with that? Do we just find people who agree with us and hang out with them all the time? Do we stop our ears so we don't hear anybody says anything that differs from my opinion? Do we find people who agree or do we debate endlessly? We could do that, and many people who profess the name of Christ have. But in some ways, what we've been talking about over the past three chapters, it doesn't really matter where you and I land. In, in some ways, they're important issues to think about and pray about and work out and read about. But the issues of election, predestination, the way salvation works, the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament and Jews and Christians, it, they are, those are issues that are really unaffected by what we believe. They are so far above us. It's kind of silly for us to pretend in our human understanding that we can master them and we can understand them. It does matter what you believe, but it doesn't affect what God has been doing throughout all of eternity. So where does that lead us? Well, it should lead us exactly where it led Paul. We're gonna cover that passage next week, but Look at where it led Paul in verses 33 through 36. And this will lead us into prayer and then communion. It led Paul to worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That's the God that we have sinned against countless times. That's the God that has consigned us to disobedience. That's the God who came for us in Christ. That's the God who has offered a free gift of salvation to any who will call upon his name. That is the God who is our savior, Christians. That is the God of our Lord. How unsearchable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things that should cause us to bow down and worship. 
I'm going to pray and David's going to come forward and lead us in communion. Let's continue this service, which I've taken a lot of time out of. Let's continue this service with a, an attitude and a heart of worship. Father, we come to you right now and we thank you for your work for us. God, we thank you that though we are all are by nature fall away, far away from you, that you have consigned us to disobedience in order that our salvation might be of mercy. God, help us to see and appreciate that salvation, even if we can't fully understand it. And let that lead us to worship and praise and adoration of your name so that others might look around and see in us a joy at that salvation that is offered to us freely and want a part of that. For your glory and for our joy, we pray.